open up to the book of Acts. What we're doing is we're, we're going through the book of Acts somewhat uh, uh, exegetically. Mostly, though, it's, it's kind of a topical, expositional kind of series. As we open the book of Acts as the only inspired book of church history that God has given to us, and we're saying, since Christ is on conquest now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is seated at his Father's right hand, and, and he has now promised to build his church, and the, the Father has promised to build the Son's kingdom, how exactly in real-time space history, how is it, what is it that we see God do, what does God do in history to do just that, to build his kingdom, to, to, to build his church? So we've already looked at, at the fact that, that God uses preaching. We saw that on Pentecost Day, that God uses preaching as his primary and favorite way to, to edify the saints, to add, add spiritual bricks into the spiritual temple. That is, that is, save souls and bring them into the kingdom. We saw the week after that that God loves the truly unified fellowship of a church that is white hot with their love for the gospel and their love for the salvation of souls. God loves to use that to draw in lost souls, to, to build up the church. And today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, so you can open up to there. But again, as we, as we sort of contextualize ourselves and, and get ourselves into the right frame of mind, we've said, and this is recap, that the, the Old Testament book of conquest was under a man named Joshua in the book that bears his name. The Old Testament conquest was that Joshua led the people of God into the, the promised land and by force and miracle and all sorts of kind of ways took the promised land for the people of God. Acts is the New Testament book of conquest, but we do not have physical swords, nor are we trying to win back the, that strip of land in the Middle East. Rather, the church's new covenant conquest is the Great Commission, where Jesus told them to go and take the gospel to every shore. Make disciples of all of those nations and disciple them. Teach them, baptize them, and send them out to do the very same work. This is the, the great conquest that Jesus, as, as the warrior king, as the great man of war, is sending and leading his people to do through the preached gospel. It's, all, it's also, so this book of Acts, it, it, it starts out in chapter 2 with Peter's sermon to, to give us this, this significant view of what has happened in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not just any other page on the Old Testament. It's not just any other person dying. It's not just any other act of God. It is the central act of God which changed everything, which brought in God's ancient promises, which revealed mysteries, which established the kingdom, which birthed the church, which bound the strong man, which purchased the world for Jesus Christ, which sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's all so significant and when we think of the church as, as just a different version of the Old Testament people, or just a, maybe even with less power, less, less fun and amazing things going on, and, and I guess we just come and we do our thing and we sing some songs and, and everything is disjointed and out of context, and we don't know that we're on mission, so of course we're failures. Of course, not knowing that we're called to mission, we are faithless in that mission. And of course, not knowing how it is that God runs his plays, not knowing what things God does, as we see in the book of Acts, that he does to build his church. We're, we're out of joint. We're not in sync with the things that the Spirit would seek to do. And so we've seen that preaching is primary. Fellowship is so central. And today we are reading Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the only true living God. Now Peter 
and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily, who laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John go, about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And he said, I have no silver or gold. Right? Look at me. You think I'm carrying silver or gold? No. I have no silver or gold. But, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made uh, this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to Pilate. Uh, sorry, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and return that your sins may be blotted out. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. Miracles. Miracles is what we're going to be looking today at the way that God uses them in the building of his church. Now keep your seats. I know we're in a Reformed Baptist church. I know how many of you just got more uncomfortable than, a, than if I had started reading, reading a John Owen passage in, in Latin. You'd be fine with, with those tongues in church, but we're looking at miracles. Now there'll be no tongues, there'll be no silliness, but friends, if we are honest with the book of Acts, what we must simply submit to is that God uses miracles in the advance of his church. I want us, and here's my thesis, I want us to be a church and a people that are committed to the Great Commission and simply believe that there is no barrier, no barricade, no hurdle, there is nothing, not even the laws of nature that can stop Jesus from saving all of his elect. That's all. That's all I'm saying. That, is the, that needs to be the compulsion, the prayer, and the expectation of Christians, that we are not afraid, we are not hesitant, we are not reluctant to pray for miracles in as much as they glorify God 
and extend his church through the preaching of the gospel. That's today's thesis. <coughs> and first of all, I want to just show you that as we look at miracles in the book of Acts, they are there primarily and always as a way to progress the gospel proclamation. So even today, one of the ways that we see this come out is that, is that the apostles saw miracles as things that, that sort of burst open doors of opportunity to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that in the temple, after having healed the man and brought him into the temple, they have thousands of Israelites come rushing towards them, asking and wondering at what happens, and they don't run to do miracles they don't preach and, and hold up Jesus as healer and, and declare that anybody with a sickness, that's, that's why Jesus came, come and be healed. They don't do that. What they do is see the opportunity brought about by a simple healing, something that could have just passed into the, the annals of history and, and never really been known or thought about or, or, or documented. He used that man, that situation that God had brought about in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and in no uncertain, no sensitive terms. The people come rushing, they love the miracle. He tells them, you're murderers, you're liars, you denied the Messiah, you're faithless to God, you murdered the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're the worst of the worst of the Jews. In the temple at the hour of prayer, you're the unholy ones. How he slices them to ribbons with his words, but that's, the, the sermon is not quite the point of the, of the entire address today, I can't go line by line as much as I want to. But the point is that Peter saw this healing, this miracle, as an opportunity to simply stand up and give an open-air sermon. I love it. It says, they all ran together, and when Peter saw it, his mind went to open-air sermon. Right here, right now. Didn't take an offering. Didn't, didn't, didn't do a healing crusade. Open-air sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we see 10 verses described the, the whole morning. A few hours pass and they're walking up and they're going in and they're healing and they're going into the temple. Ten verses describe the healing. Sixteen verses explain the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which they had to believe to be saved. It is the gospel they explain, not the healing. The, the, the miracle, whatever it be, is often in the book of Acts, the front door to God's purposes. That the miracle is something that opens the front door, but, but if you're going to a house and you are, they open the front door for you, how, how foolish we are to sit down in the little archway, keep the door open, sit there and expect that that's where the hosting will partake. Now, of course, that's, that's just the entryway. When God uses miracles in the book of Acts, it's, it's that the door is being opened, the apostles, the faithful Christians always run through it to get to the gospel, to get to the main point, to get to the mission. We see it also in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. There's another man, just like this fellow at the temple. He's lame from birth, and it's Paul and Barnabas this time that heal him. Now again, what's the situation that occurs? It's that they see him, they heal him, people rush to them. Now in the Gentile context this time, they start praising Paul and Barnabas as gods, con confusing them with, with, the, with the, 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 the Greek and Roman uh, uh, deities that have obviously come down in the, in the presence of these men. They say, no, that's not the case at all. And then what's the substance of their sermon? Is it they, that they decry sickness? And they call out God's curse upon those who are, who are ill and those who are, those who are anything less than physically perfect. No, not at all. They spend their time decrying idolatry, calling God's curse upon those who worship false gods. And then what do they hope? What do they, they open and, and hold out Jesus as? What do they promise? Do they promise healing? No. 
They promise forgiveness in Jesus. That's the, that's the point. That's why miracles are given in these ways. The purpose of these miracles is for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The reason God does anything in this age of his son, the reason God gives you any blessings that he's ever given you, the reason God does anything in the church, and this is true of every sermon we're going to spend in the book of Acts, the reason he does any of, any of these things is ultimately so that he can further the great commission through the preaching of the gospel in his church. That's why miracles are given. In fact, <coughs> this is why the spirit was given. This is why their miraculous power, that spiritual um, uh, power was given at Pentecost. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he did not say, wait in Jerusalem, you will receive power and you'll be able to do all kinds of crazy things. It'll It'll be a real show, enjoy it. He says, in the very same context of receiving that power, he says, and you will be my witnesses. The reason we have the Spirit, the reason Pentecost occurred, friends, the reason we have spiritual gifts at all, whether teaching or faith or hospitality, the reason we have them is for the mission, always. And it's no no different when we look at the occurrences of miracles in the book of Acts. We need to see that in, in Acts, the miracles in their context are powerful acts of God that serve the purpose of the conquest of Jesus Christ in the world. This means that any desire, any prayer for, any seeking after miracles that is coming out of a heart or a motivation that is not primarily for the sake of the Great Commission, that is explicit gospel proclamation, so that individuals are saved and added to the church, repeat forever, unless that is the desire that one prays for or seeks after miracles, or if somebody is seeking after miracles outside of the context of explicit gospel proclaiming ministry or church, that desire is misguided, misled, and in fact, idolatrous. It is to to desire the the tool as a a toy within itself rather than something given for a higher purpose. It is to desire the gift more than the purpose the gift is given for, which is mission the great commission of Jesus Christ. It is so important that any desire for miracles are in their right context. Miracles, miracles are not the gospel. You need to hear me clearly that absolutely nobody, I don't even care what they say in their testimony, absolutely nobody has ever been converted because they saw a miracle. No one has ever been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No one has ever been forgiven before a just and holy God who holds all of us condemned beneath his law. No one has ever escaped that condemnation and wrath because we saw somebody raised from the dead, because my leg grew a little shorter, because a spirit came out of somebody, because there was a miracle in church that day that's never justified anybody. That which saves people is the gospel and the gospel alone and the gospel understood and received into the heart. It is the fact that they heard of the life of Jesus, perfect and in our place. It is because they heard of the death of Jesus where he carried our sin and took God's punishment in our place. It's because they've heard that Jesus rose from the dead to assure everybody that sin is paid for and that eternal life is promised. 
It's because they've heard that this Jesus was, ex- was exalted to the Father's right hand. It's because they heard that that their souls can be saved. It is only because they hear that that their souls can ever be saved of any of the wrath of God. I'll go so far as to say this. Many swim in miracles who are on their way to the hottest of hells. Miracles are no alternative to the gospel. Miracles are not even on par with the gospel. Miracles aren't even necessary to the gospel. It's just that God, in his work, often and frequently throughout history, is pleased to pour them out. Miracles are not the gospel. Miracles give opportunity for the gospel. Jesus uses them as a gift to the church to open certain doors of opportunity. But secondly, we need to, we're just going to take a quick, and I hope you, hope you got, look, if you've got a fake Bible, you're going to a fake heaven. If you're a fake Christian, you can scroll. You've got a real Bible. You're going to be flicking with us pretty frequently. We're just going to go, and you don't even need to go there. I won't give time to go there. But you can jot them down at least. A quick perusal of the entirety of the book of Acts. <clears throat> In the book of Acts, there's, there's different words for miraculous events. There's some words that are, that are signs, some word is, is wonder, some word is miracles or miracle power, which is that, 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 that word dunamis. <coughs> the word for signs occurs 12 times. Sometimes it's, it's translated miracle. The word for wonders occurs nine times. The word for miracle power occurs 10 times. In chapter 2, verse 19... Peter explains that Joel's prophecy promises in the last days that there will be signs and wonders in the New Covenant era. In chapter 2, verse 22, Peter, preaching about Jesus' life, marks his earthly life as one with mighty works, signs, and wonders. In 2, verse 43, then the early church in their fellowship is marked out. One of the things that God does to them is pour out many wonders and signs, it says. In chapter 3, verse 7, which we've just read, Peter and John heal the man born lame. In chapter 5, there's the miraculous death of the lying manipulators in God's church, Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter chapter 5, verse 12, it says, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. In chapter 6, verse 8, now you get Stephen, deacon, not apostle, uh, deacon Stephen up and he's preaching, he's full of grace and, and power and he was doing great wonders and signs. Chapter 8, verse 6 and 13, Philip Another deacon, wish we had deacons like this. A deacon was doing signs and great merit. You need a new pulpit? Bang. Roof need fixing? Bang. That'd be handy. <clears throat> signs and great miracles Philip was doing down in Samaria. In chapter 8, verse 39, get this one. Philip was teleported from Gaza to Azotus in a moment. Walks on down, evangelizes the eunuch, blinks, and he's, he's miles away. Teleported. You didn't seem like you heard that. That, That's that's awesome. 9 verse 18, healing of, uh, 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 there's the healing of Paul's eyes after he was converted and blinded. In chapter 9 verse 34, Peter heals a man and then he raises a woman from the dead. In chapter 10, Peter receives a miraculous vision and then the Gentiles he preached to receive uh, prophetic words and, and speak in different languages they'd never learned. In chapter 12, Peter is miraculously rescued by an angel from prison and Herod 
is struck down dead miraculously for his pride against the Lord God, holy and omnipotent. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are doing signs and wonders in Iconium. In chapter 16, the Philippian jail is miraculously shaken. Uh, uh, the, 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 The prisoners are unharmed and convert the jailer. In chapter 19, verse 11, Paul is in Ephesus. He's teaching five hours every day for nearly three years. Uh, And he's also, verse 11 tells us, doing extraordinary miracles. Chapter 20, Eutychus dies because he falls asleep during a sermon. That much I promise. He falls asleep during a sermon. He, He won't walk out. What we can't promise is that we'll raise you back to life, which is what happened to Eutychus. Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of a window, died. Paul raised him up, walked back upstairs, kept on preaching. Chapter 28, Paul is shipwrecked on Malta, a little island. He's bitten by a viper. The people around him, the, the, the villagers assume he's cursed of God. The snake viper bit him. He doesn't die, in fact, but shakes it off into the fire. They're, they're amazed at his, his, his apparent immediate healing. And then he is also brought to pray for the chief's father who was laying dying and he was healed. And everybody was bringing their sick to Paul to be healed on the island of Malta. The point is not, here's, my, here's what I need to make very clear. The point is not that these are all promised or that these are all the norm. You should be seeking these. How, how good would it be for petrol prices at the moment to be able to teleport, right? How good it would be to be able to, to just expect, well, we all want to pray when we're under political trouble or maybe in prison, angel, come down now. It happened to Peter. Got to happen to me. Here's the norm. Here's what we should always expect. That is by no means what we're saying, nor, nor am I recommending that, that you run around and grab a viper and chuck her on your wrist like one of those slap, slap wristbands every time you go evangelizing just to prove a few things. Never. None of these things are given uh, prescriptively as if They are themselves to be sought. The point is that by sheer frequency, God wants us to know that he has no hesitation to work miracles through his church in order for her to take ground in the Great Commission. That's the point. God is not hesitant to give miracles when the church is in need of it so that the gospel can be proclaimed. But we have to ask the question, why? Of course, the ultimate why, the the why does God give miracles? Why do miracles occur ever? Of course, we've already said the the ultimate why is that God would be glorified through the extension of the gospel, sure. Let's ask a bit more practical because God could do anything to extend the gospel. God does do all sorts of things. That's the point of this whole series. He does preaching, he uses fellowship, he uses miracles. We're going to see persecution and and bad political uh, uh, legal action. We're going to see uh, evangelism and mission, all sorts of things that God does. Why does he use miracles? What specific things does God use miracles to do? And the answers are plentiful. One of the purposes is to confirm the message. This is one of the reasons that we see miracles in such high regularity around the ministry of the apostles. It's because they were, they were a unique generation of those, of those men that were given to give new revelation from heaven. This was, this was new mysteries being unfolded. There was, there was a concentration of a large degree of miracles around their ministry because part of what miracles do is confirm the messengers from heaven. In fact, Nicodemus speaks to this when he comes and meets Jesus by night and he says, we know that you are from God because you do things that only a man sent from God can do. 
And this is, this is some measure in which the, the New Testament gives us. It's not absolute, is it? It's not absolute at all because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, John says in 1 John 4, that when you see miracles, when you see an evidence of spiritual activity, question it, test it, be careful, because the, if, if the devil himself can dress up like an angel of light, then no doubt also his messengers can heal your wrist and raise your dog and promise your finances. They can do some miraculous things, no doubt. That itself is no sign. And yet, God is pleased in his revelation to show us that he will use miracles every now and then in order to confirm the message. Moses, even if you think back to Moses, that was a, a mindset of Moses. He, he was called by God in the burning bush, go and, go and speak to my people. And he says, they won't believe me. How can I convince them? And God gives to him the miracle working power to be able to do certain things specifically because the people need convincing. Now, was it absolute? No, because even the, the Pharaoh's uh, magicians were able to do some miraculous works, and yet, overarchingly, the, the message was, God has sent this man because of the, and, and is confirming the message preached because of the great powers that accompany him. It was also the case for Elijah. Do you remember? One of my favorite Old Testament passages, the place where I get my cultural engagement examples from, Elijah up on the mount, mountain of Carmel, challenging the, uh, the prophets of Baal. And we go, how about this? A little, bit of a, little bit of, a little bit of divine chess. Your God versus my God. Let's put two cows up on these altars. You call your God to, to set your altar on fire. I'll wait a while, pour some water on mine, and then ask my God to set it on fire. And we'll see whose God is real and the miraculous power is granted of course to Elijah. Why? To confirm not to the Baalite priests. They got shriveled up in the flames that came down and then hacked to pieces those who were left. Awesome. The message was for the Israelites, the people of God, those seeing, those hearing that God blessed the right preacher. He blessed, he blessed, he blessed the true message with the divine power of miracles. Now, is this what happened with every preacher of the gospel? Is this what happened with every prophet? No. And yet God is pleased to at some times use miracles to bless the message. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 5 to 8. When Philip, the deacon, he went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. God, God doesn't mind. And, and I even get a little bit nervous at this. God, you should probably put a full stop, big paragraph in between the statements that people saw the miracles and believed. Just, just gives my, my charismaniac friends just a little bit too much ammo, right? Let's, let's raise them, let's miracle, let's do stuff, let's pray the powers because then people will believe. But the twisting of Scripture is no fault of the Scripture itself. Here God, in his own inspiration, sees no problem with writing down that while the, the gospel was being proclaimed with power, the people also were, were drawn and were, and were, were convinced and, were, and, and they, that the miracles were something that God used to drive them to attention at the foot of the cross that was being preached. It happens again in chapter 9, verse 35. Peter uh, uh, raises somebody from the dead, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw the man raised, and they turned to the Lord. 
chapter 9, verse 42, Dorcas is raised from the dead, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. God sees no problem with telling us that a miracle was done and people were turned. But the miracles are not the gospel. In fact, the miracles are not even, friends, are not even. Though God may use them to convince people, to drive them to the church, to send them into the sound of the preaching, to convince their hearts. Yes, God may do that. But those who demand such a sign to believe are called by Jesus an adulterous, idolatrous, blasphemous generation. When people say that God speaks, and I want to see a cool show, Jesus, I want to see you just do something cool, then I'll believe you. God says that that heart is idolatrous and adulterous, turned against the truth of God. It makes God into a puppet, makes God into a, into a jester, that he would, at our beck and call, do a little something just because just we don't think he's trustworthy. He says in Matthew, in Matthew 16, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling the parable of the man who went to hell and he cries out that he might be able to send somebody back from hell, send somebody back from the dead to warn his brothers because they do not believe. They are in their sin. And he is told in this parable by, by Abraham in, in heaven, he goes, they have the Bible, right? They've got, they've got the Moses books, they've got the book of the prophets, let them read them. And, and the man in hell says, no, they, they have the Bible. They have the prophets. They have Moses' scrolls. That's not enough. But if someone raises from the dead, then they'll believe. And Abraham, through the lips of Jesus, says, if they hear not God's voice in scriptures, they will not believe even if someone raises from the dead. Then Jesus raises from the dead, and they still don't believe. So not only is it adulterous to say to God, do a sign, then I'll believe, it's not even true. You won't believe until the Holy Spirit in your heart brings you to the point of faith. This is so important. This, this tight tension, this balancing act that the church must have as we think about miracles. But where God is truly at work, the miraculous becomes not, not even a common, I'm not going to say an everyday, nothing, nothing that is ordinary in our experience on the everyday, but the miraculous are a tool in God's hand to confirm the witness of the gospel. The second thing, and this is a little bit more Covenantal, this is a little bit more biblical, theological. This one is that the presence of miracles in the new covenant age bear witness to the presence of the kingdom of God. Jesus was speaking and preaching and doing works among a people that did not believe the kingdom would look like what he was telling them it was going to look like. Then others were believing that by his powers he was showing he was of the kingdom of darkness. And to combat both of them, he says in Matthew 12, verse 28, If it is by the Holy Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Jesus' language and in Matthew's theological explanation of, of the life of Jesus, he is saying that the salvation God prophesied to pour out, the kingdom that God had prophesied to establish, the new covenant era, when, when blessing would come through the gospel to the world, when, when all the families of the earth should be blessed as Abraham was promised. That coming time was now, Jesus was saying, and you know it because by the Spirit of God I cast out demons. No, 
no wait for the kingdom of God. What's the message? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So that, so that what God does, even in a continuing way, through the presence of the miraculous, not the, not the overflow, not, the, not the, even the regularity, but the presence of the miraculous, what God does to those outside the church and even those inside the church is to confirm the kingdom of God is a present and imminent nearby, in our midst, reality. A reality that does not consist just of talk, that is not just the empty speakings, but is a, is, it, is a, it is a witness from God himself that Jesus is on the throne, that the Holy Spirit is poured out, that the kingdom of God is established and present. I think this is why, this is why in the times of great revivals, we see an uptick in the miraculous. Because what revivals are are nothing more than, a, than an increased pace and an increased num- numerical growth in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That the conquest takes up some speed. That the, that the salvations are increasing in volume. That's what revival is. And, and therefore what it is, is, is the presence of the kingdom of God breaking through into our world. Nothing, nothing entirely weird and spiritual, theological, true, salvific, redemption, people getting saved because the kingdom of God is here. And, and so, of course, hand in hand with that, there will be moments, instances, examples of the miraculous where God is bearing witness. This is not mere excitability among church folk. This is the reviving work of the Holy Spirit in your midst. Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening of America in the 1730s and 40s. You'll read about him in your bulletin. He was, he was no doubt a, a strict cessationist. He was no doubt a Calvinistic, covenantal, reformed preacher. And yet, as God poured out a great awakening under his preaching, a huge, voluminous intake into the kingdom where souls were being saved. He could not get away from the fact that miracles were happening all over the place, ones that made him feel so uncomfortable that when his own wife was reporting to him visions and dreams and all sorts of types of things like that, he published the account because it's so important that people people would hear about this. But he did it under a pseudonym so that no one would know that it was his wife. When God pulls out revivals, there, there, there is his proof in the miraculous that the kingdom of God is in their midst. There was a, there was a young lady, Nancy Wheeler, that was mate, Marcy Wheeler. Let me get the name right because that's not her name. And those who watch the show know who I just said. <clears throat> when revivals were pulled out, Mercy Wheeler, you'll forgive me. Mercy Wheeler, she was an invalid in cessationist Calvinistic New England. Here she was, Marcy, Macy, I forget her name, Mar- Mercy Wheeler. An invalid from birth, and she is miraculously raised and healed and starts a a, a fear, starts an astonishment, starts a worry among the revival, among the pastors, among among the careful. What was that? Can that be trusted? And it drove people in a sense of prayer. It drove people in a sense of the nearness, the imminence of God. He is in our midst I think of the Isle of Lewis in 1949, the revival that, that broke out there in, in, in the, 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 the islands off of Scotland. And as, and as people had come together to pray in a little house, in a little home in the town, it, it literally shook. The, the house was shaking. They, 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 they were burdened with, with the prayer for revival. They walked out of their house in the middle of the night. And what did they see? Streams of young people carrying chairs going to the church meeting house. No announcement. No bulletin. 
just people walking in the middle of the night. They were like, what, what is everybody doing? They said, God's calling us to the, to the church hall. God wants us to hear. And so they all walked and so they all filled. That there, was, there, were, there were these miracles being poured out here and there. Why? Because in a theological way, God is proving that the kingdom of God is in their midst. This is one of the ways that miracles are used by God. Thirdly, one of the tools, one of the, expl- the specific reasons that God gives miracles in the advance of his kingdom, in the advance of the gospel, is to strike fear and astonishment. To strike fear and astonishment into people. And this happens enough times that I think it merits its own, its own sub-point. That, in, that, that as we remember, the book of Acts, the Great Commission is our conquest for Christ. And we remember back to the book of Joshua, as we did two weeks ago, and remember that even in Joshua's time, the miraculous occurred. And it was always occurring to advance the mission, but one of the ways that it happened, one of the effects that it had was that other people were fearful and astonished at what they heard. For Joshua, the, 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 the Jordan dried up and they walked on over. They were receiving manna from heaven still and uh, until a certain point of time. They, uh, they received, uh, uh, of course, he had the angelic visitation. That was one of the, one of the miracles. There was, there was others. They, uh, they, the falling of Jericho at the, at the blow of the trumpets. The sun itself stood still for a day so that they might win their battle. God was doing miracles through Joshua's time. And it was striking fear into the heart of the people. Rahab in Jericho says, we've heard, we tremble. There's not a man in this town that doesn't have a heart like melted wax within him at the news of your God. And so it is also in the book of Acts. We read in chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, after Ananias and Sapphira had been struck dead for their lies in the church. He says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So which is it, Luke? What's the correct divinely inspired account? Did no one dare join them because of the miracles and the dead Christians that just got carried out in body bags? Or did they grow at a rate that had not yet been seen in the book of Acts? Friends, it was both. How God uses fear and astonishment to, in fact, drive forward the purposes of his gospel. Chapter 2, verse 43, we saw this in our last sermon. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says that, and all the people saw him, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 3, which we've just read about the, the lame man. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the gate beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. God uses miracles to strike fear into people that they are meeting with the holy God. I think of Spurgeon's life. Even, even Spurgeon, the great Calvinistic, somewhat cessationist preacher of the 1800s, a sensible time, but a gospel preacher above everything else. And at times, as he's preaching to the 10, the 15, the 20,000 in front of him, he was struck that there's somebody in the room right now who kept their shoe store open last Sabbath and made sixpence profit. You're selling your soul on the Lord's day for sixpence. And he went on with his sermon. 
months later came the report that a man sitting there that day was directly described by his moment. He went home. He never met Spurgeon. He went home. He repented of the Lord. He shut his shop on Sundays. He was there in the church. Another time as he's preaching, he says, and you know what? There's a, there's a servant girl, and in your pocket, you've got two white gloves that belong to, your mate, to the person you're serving. You ought to return them for theft. Is a sin punishable by wrath of God. And then he kept on preaching. And I'm sure the 15,999 people there that didn't get described are thinking Spurgeon's uh, gout's getting to him. It may be one too many Sabbath pipes and whiskeys, as was his custom. But the one of the 16,000, the young girl converted on the spot because he described her sin, just as 1 Corinthians 14 tells us. So when, when the sin is told, the heart is broken open, they fall to their knees and say, surely God is in this place. But you, know, you know what Spurgeon didn't do? He didn't put pause on the gospel preaching and go, can I just get a confirmation of that? Can I just, you know what, can I just see your hand? Anybody, anybody feel like you've got two white gloves in your pocket? Can I see? Because I just want everybody here to know that I was right. No, nothing of that kind. And he would say dozens of times in his preaching, such events occurred. Why? Because God sought through a gospel preacher to impress his presence on the people of God. Fourthly, one of the ways, one of the reasons that God brings miracles to bear through gospel uh, ministry is to remove barriers to ministry. And I really mean this in the most practical, almost pragmatic of ways. We can look in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 12 and we see that Peter is in prison and the miracle that is achieved is, is nothing more than an angel coming, walking him out of the gates, taking him to his... He thought it was a vision because there's got to be something more significant than this and what's going on. And he's left at the gates and the angel's gone. It was nothing more than that the preacher of the gospel needed to be released from prison so that he could preach the gospel. Now, is that the norm? No, because the apostle James had just been imprisoned and beheaded. Was it the expectation of the everyday that the, the early disciples would think, whenever we're in prison, angel's going to come? No, because when he knocked on their door, delivered from the miraculous uh, exit of the prison, he knocks on the door and no one believes that it's him. Peter's ghost is here. He's obviously dead. Our prayers fail. They weren't expecting it, but God was pleased to do it for the most pragmatic reasons. We think of, we think of missionaries and, and how many stories I've heard along these lines, but the one that I know where the, where the, where the Bible uh, smuggler was moving into a, a closed country where you'd lose your teeth and then your head if you were found to be bringing Bibles into this closed country. And on the border, the border police came forward, asked for his passport, pocketed that, walked around back where the Bibles were kept in his boot, opened it up, gun cocked, loaded and ready to go, saw nothing, closed it down, handed the passport back and went back to his little box. How? Why? Missionary needed to get in with Bibles, that's why. Other stories like this are all over the shop for the most, for the most pragmatic of reasons. God sometimes does miracles because there's no hurdles for his gospel. We think of the fact that, you know, Paul is raised after he's beaten and left for literal dead and then he just walks up and there he is, healed, cracks his spine a bit, back into town. Why? Because people need to hear the gospel. God raised him so that he could keep on preaching, I think, in this context of Luther, Martin Luther. He, 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 he had this friend, this, this fellow reformer, Melanchthon. In the 1500s, Melanchthon, a, a faithful servant of God that Luther felt he couldn't do without, was lying, dying as he went to another city to preach. And Luther heard that he was sick, and so he, he traveled and he went to the town and, and he was too late. 
he went into the room and there was Melanchthon. He was, he was, he was as far as they could tell, lifeless, dead. Not to Luther, down he goes onto his knees. He says, I brought the promises of God to the throne room of heaven and rubbed them in God's ears. He couldn't say no. This is how Luther would pray. And he boldly asks and prays, God, we cannot do without Melanchthon. And he heard a voice back. Luther, won't you let me die in peace? (laughs) And Luther said to the now somewhat reviving, gurgling, breathing Melanchthon, he says, no, we can't do without you yet. He keeps praying and the story is that he's there for hours praying and pleading God and multiple times Melanchthon says, please let me go in peace. Oh, the hell that it would be to live in the medieval ages. The hell it would be to be a reformer in those early years, persecuted and chased, and his moments from the gates of heaven. And here's Luther dragging him back to the mud of the earth. And within hours, he was up, he was walking, he was back on his horse to go and preach. God, God gives these miracles for sometimes the most practical of reasons to give the church what she needs to continue on with her mission. We see this in Acts chapter 9 when when Peter raises Dorcas, or her other name, uh, Tabitha, and she was dead. She was dead. The scripture inspired says she had passed. And here she was dead, and the reason that all these widows and all these young women and all these young mothers without husbands are, are praying to Peter, please come and help us because Dorcas was the mother to them. Dorcas was the, was the renter grandmother and she would sew and she would knit and she would make the scarves and the baby swaddles and she was a service to the church, like a, like a, like a, like a deacon of the, of the highest order in her service. And they were asking Peter for help and he goes in and he prays and she's raised. Why? Because the people need their help. Couldn't God have raised somebody else up to knit and sew? Yeah, but he didn't mind raising Dorcas, I think. I think of this example in, in church history when George Mueller, the German, the German fellow who ran the orphanage for many, many children, and to his, his full room of children, he had an empty pantry. And he opens up and they're all laying there and so rather sitting in all of their rows in the, in the orphanage and he stands up and he prays and he says, God, we thank you for the food that we are about to receive. And before he could get to the amen, walks over to the door, Opens it up, there's the town baker. Mueller, I don't know what you've been praying again, but God didn't let me sleep last night till I baked hundreds of fresh rolls for you and your orphans. I hope it's enough, I need to sleep. Out, out onto the, onto the table it goes. Not leftovers this time, not donated seconds. Warm, fresh bread for the orphans. And there Mueller says, well, friends, we have not just bread, but fresh bread. Let us eat, before he could say, another knock on the door. And out he went. And there was the milkman. Mueller, your dang pothole broke my cart. I've got hundreds of liters of milk now sitting on a horse-drawn carriage in the sun. Can you take it in? Do you have a use for the milk? And so it was brought in and given. Why? Because God is a God that loves the orphan. Couldn't he have done something else? Couldn't he have just kept kept the, the pantry full through donations? Yeah, but you know what God loves to do? Shake and assure his people of his presence. And so he did. God loves to meet our needs through even, even the miraculous. I think lastly, just hear of John Payton. 
John G. Payton, who went to what is now Vanuatu, the New Hebrides in his time, a Scottish missionary. And, and there was one night when the, when the savages, the cannibals, ready to eat him, the dozens of armed men were, were surrounding his hut where he and his wife were. And down they went and they prayed. And he thought, we're going to die. I may as well go down in somewhat of a blaze of glory. I'll confront them and beg at least for the life of my wife. And as he walked out, the men were sprinting. A year later, the converted chief of the town would tell him the story of the hundreds of fiery armed men standing around your hut. Oh, they sent us running. There was no British police. There was no armed men. It was angels that had protected those missionaries. Why? So that today, Vanuatu would be 83% Christianized through the missionary work of John G. Payton and his followers. That's why. Why the night when he was surrounded and, and, the, and the fence set on fire so that it would take his hut and burn his family? Why did he, did he run out and throw the fence off so it didn't burn his family? And then he was surrounded by men about to kill him and the, the fire was blazing. And as he prayed and challenging these men, you dare not oppose the work of Jehovah the mighty. A wind blew through, a mighty gust of water blew through and quenched the fire and scurried these men away. Why? Because God does the miraculous for no other reason than to bless and aid and equip the church in the preaching of the gospel. He has no hesitation. He doesn't have our, our resistance and our uncomfortability about God's mighty works. He doesn't mind doing them. So what God was willing to do in the conquest of Joshua to provide any means necessary to accomplish God's purposes in Canaan, how much more in the covenant of his dear beloved son? Will he, accomplish his, will, he, will he accomplish his purposes? He will employ any means necessary to do so for the church. So the conclusion is that whatever you do, wherever you go, in as much as you actively seek the fulfillment of the Great Commission, you need fear no boundary, no limitation, no barricade, and not even the laws of nature. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, you will have it so that the Father may glorify himself in his Son. Whether you've got a prodigal out there. And you can see no reason for him to be able to come back lest God through his divine, miraculous intervention strike him. Like, like the 1904 revival, the father in the church praying, the drunkard son at the bar, unable to pick up the drink from the bar because as he, as he convicted of his sin, let go, ran from there in the fear of God and went into the church. He found his father praying, keep my son's hand from the drink, keep my son's hand from the drink. Whatever it may be, maybe, maybe it's that in your evangelism, you can see no way of somebody coming to Christ and you simply pray, Lord God, do anything as you ask for it, so he will do it, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If the church stretched out in our resources in order to see the mission uh, uh, done, the Great Commission uh, uh, done among the nations, and we, we have no money, can we pray, God, Top us up, please. Here we are, empty of resources. Here you are, owner of a thousand cattle on a thousand hill. Won't you give us something miraculous? We can pray. Oh, we'll work. We'll be wise. We'll do our own thing, but we will pray. Can't you in the, in the, for, the, for the young man or the, 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 the family that feels a call on the father to go into ministry, but provisions don't seem to allow it. His gift is not quite there yet. His opportunities are sparse. What can he and his wife do? Anything and everything, as long as they also pray for God's miraculous intervention for the sake of the mission. When we're praying for revival and reformation across a town or a state or a nation, surely we know 
that the miraculous and the inexplainable events will come together to create a spiritual hunger, a desperation to hear the gospel. When a single mother in the church needs provision that neither she or the church can get together, does God not hear her prayers and does she not have the freedom to ask, God, do a miracle, do whatever you can, please, yes, pray for it so he will do it is Jesus' command. If you pray in his name, such that the Father might be glorified in the Son, for the sake of the expansion of the church, Jesus Christ will see that our prayers are answered. I love the posture of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 31, we see the prayer of the early church. They say, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Verse 29, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch your hand out to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Friends, what did they pray for? What should we be like them in what we pray for? The gospel to go out to save souls, us to be bold in that endeavor and for God to do miracles. What do we do? We preach the gospel with all boldness, allow him to do what miracles he does. They prayed for the miracles. They, they, weren't, they weren't better theologians than us. Sorry, they weren't worse theologians than us. Those Christians praying for miracles. We must pray that way, but what we do is proclaim with boldness. The actions and the prayers ought to have such a biblical balance. And yet the most miraculous thing that God ever does the most miraculous thing that there is, is in fact the gospel itself. One more Spurgeon story. The Crystal Palace had recently been built. It was a, it was a tremendous feat of structural engineering in London and, and there it could seat tens of thousands of people and Spurgeon had been invited to preach in that great hall to 26,000 people. No amplification, no microphone, just him and the Holy Spirit of God. And he went a couple of days earlier to be able to go to this, in, this empty, empty hall and just try out his vocals. Just, just try out the, 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 the acoustics of the place. And so he stands up on where he thought the, the stage should probably be and he cries out, <clears throat> Behold! <clears throat> the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world! <laughs> Seems to work. Down he hopped, home he went. Years later, the man who was there that day in the distant corner, cleaning chairs, sweeping seats, heard like the voice of God rumbling to him in the, in the corner as all the acoustics piled onto him. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is no power in all of the world with all of our nuclear, scientific, whatever we do, we will never be able to create such a power that you can merely speak a sentence to somebody and change their very core, their very nature, their very identity, where they're going after they die. You can change nothing with words. But the gospel, I don't mean the content of the gospel, that Jesus lived for us in the miraculous incarnation and died for us and miraculously rose from us and went up to heaven. All of that is miraculous. I'm talking about the proclamation of the gospel. God does a miracle whenever we hear the gospel. The, the gospel has so much power, 
Spurgeon accidentally saves somebody with it. What, what an enormous, eruptuous power God has invested in the gospel that when it is heard and it falls like a seed into the ground of somebody's heart, it explodes in spiritual life. Spurgeon himself said, Is not the gospel its own sign and wonder? Is not this a miracles of miracles that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish? Surely that precious word, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely and that solemn promise, him that comes to me I will by no wise cast out, are better than signs and wonders. Friends, have you come And despite what you see and despite what God gives you, have you come and received the good news of God that in his son Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you may be saved? That is the wonders of wonders. That is the miracle, the wonder, the sign that all other wonders and signs are pointing to. Have you come to the cross and received forgiveness in Jesus Christ? You must today. And if you have, praise be to our living, saving God. Let's pray. Father God, we're foolish if we expect to come to your scriptures and never be challenged. If we expect to be able to come and dive deeply into, in fact, the account of the, of, the, of the spreading of the gospel in those early decades and never be surprised, never be jolted by what we hear, the, the zeal with which they sacrificed their goods, the, 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 the zeal and the boldness with which they proclaimed the gospel and even, Lord, the openness that they saw that you would at any time do whatever you needed to bring whoever you wanted into the kingdom and bless the church however you wished. Father God, where there are need for miracles, we we bend ourselves to your will and we, like the first church, we ask that you would, as we proclaim, as we boldly evangelize, as we invite, as we build, as we do all that we can by your Holy Spirit, Lord, won't you also smile on our work and stretch out your mighty hand to do signs and wonders, and Lord, where we see none of them, though we pray, we are submitted to the fact. We are satisfied with the fact to be able to speak the powerful, wonderful, miraculous gospel of Jesus Christ. Establish our heart there, Lord God. Make us a church that is zealous and hungry to be used in the Great Commission. And may you bless us however you see fit on such a path. We pray all of these things in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus. And everybody said...